Hello and welcome to the Flying Frisbee podcast with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now, I am not familiar with uh, my guest today. Uh, I did not know him. And my friend Alex McCarran, the director, said he's in the UK. You've got to meet him. He's absolutely brilliant. So I got out my Google and uh, his name is Hugh Wilburn. And he writes about business, market research, the mind and persuasion. And I'm hoping uh, this is going to be one of those interviews when we all, as a result of it, end up uh, more powerful, more persuasive people. Um, Hugh's authored numerous books, numerous self-help books with Paul McKenna. And uh, he's written a new book, which is called The Bug in Our Thinking and the Way to Fix It. So, Hugh, welcome. You live in Vietnam, so uh, you've come a long way. Welcome, sir. And um, do you want to, I, I want to know what the bug in our thinking is, but maybe we should just start and you just give us a quick update on who you are and what you've done and so on. Uh, Dominic, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, gracious, uh, that's so hard to, to do a pracy. Um, I'm a, I had a qualitative market research business for 12 years. I'm a psychotherapist. I trained in hypnosis. I was also very interested in philosophy. I was a professional storyteller. What does that mean? The storyteller bit? Yeah. Um, so there are pretty much every society, not all of them, but had stories before they had reading and writing. Mm -hmm. And they're known as the oral tradition. Mm -hmm. And most of them disappeared when people started reading and writing. But a few uh, collectors, the likes of the Grimm's brothers or Abiosan and Mo in, in Scandinavia, started writing them down. And that was kind of, you know, social historian stuff. And about, ooh, I don't know, 30 years ago, I guess, um, some people started thinking, well, let's tell these old stories again. And a little circuit built up of storytellers. So they would tell traditional tales, but to a modern audience, and then mix it up with perhaps anecdotes of their own lives. And the way storytelling works... And you'd go, what, like from pub to pub, or...? You'd have little geeks. You know, you'd... you'd, you'd and sometimes you'd do it in pubs, but mostly it would be an art centre or something mm -hmm. like that. And you, you tell the same story every time, but you don't have a script. You see it in your mind's eye, and you tell it. In fact, when I got into it, I, I loved it. Um, and uh, I write about it in the book, actually, how I got into it. And after a little while, I started uh, booking other storytellers. Um, so I'd have a, a season and I'd do one or two gigs and I'd get other people in. And back in the day, it was, it was kind of alternative. So most of the people who were telling stories and most of the people who were listening... You know, wearing sandals, shaggy beards, and bearded kind of jumpers and stuff. And I thought, A, that's not very lucrative, and B, the people who really need this are the bourgeoisie. So I took a restaurant in Holland Park, fancy, fancy restaurant. I persuaded them to give me the top floor. We did a, a, an a, la, a, a table d'hote menu, so like choice of two. And it, we called it Fable Feasts. We were telling stories and people had a fine dining experience at the same time. And this is yonks ago and people were dropping, you know, 100 quid for two, which obviously now is the price of a couple of burgers. But back then, that was, that was big money. And so we had all these sort of Kensington people come in and they had a whale of a time. It really, it was, that was a lot of fun. And I managed to pay my... 
Okay, we're going to sideline a little bit into storytelling before we come back to we finishing your resume. Okay. So this is something somebody said to me once upon a time, and it's one of those theories by which I was persuaded. Why did, of all the plethora of religions that existed in ancient Mesopotamia and so on, mm. and ancient Egypt, why did Judaism survive and none of the others did? Mm. They wrote it down. Ah, ah, yes. And then that would also explain why Christianity superseded all the Nordic religions, mm -hmm. which were also, the stories were all oral, mm -hmm. whereas Christianity was written down yeah. um, in the Dark Ages and, and medieval times. Um, what do you think of that? Well, the, the three religions of the book are Judaism, Christianity and Islam, all have a book. And uh, it's, it's very powerful because it fixes your your stories your beliefs and so on and but it but it also i would argue there are limitations uh, there's a huge in my book i say we are now approaching the deep dark forest of philosophy but we're not going in <laughs> we'll scoot around the other side this is a huge question you've asked uh, um which I don't want to half answer. You know, it's okay. A bit too, it would be glib. And um, I kind of know too much to be able to condense it properly. Um, so I'm stymied there. I, I can't answer your question. Okay. Here's what I think is amazing about what's going on in the world at the moment. And then we'll come back to your resume. Okay. And if you don't want to dwell on this, it's fine. Um, the... We invented writing as a means to transfer words over distance and over time. Uh -huh. We actually absorb words better through the ear than we do through the page. Uh -huh. And um, that explains the existence of books, which are basically bits of condensed knowledge in a way. Uh -huh. And But what's so wonderful about the boom in podcasting that's arisen due to new technology and voicemails and all the rest of it is we no longer need books uh -huh. to do that. Uh -huh. Information can be transferred back through the ear over in distance and time because of the genius of podcasting and mobile phones and technology and all the rest of it. And that explains the rise of audio books, the rise of podcasts, and it also explains why they've become such a powerful educative tool. Would you agree with that? Um, very much and not at all. So, uh, <laughs> yes, I do agree. So, the guy who who, who explored the, the history of, of the growth of literacy, a man called Walter Ong, he coined the term orality for those societies which don't have reading and writing. And then there's the, the modern society of, of based on literacy. So literacy is really the primary technology which makes possible all the other ones. And then there's what he called secondary orality. So what you're talking about, where we have the technology that allows us to record sound and transmit it or repeat it and record it. But there's an enormous difference between primary orality and secondary orality. Mm -hmm. And, and indeed, one of the themes in my book is the impact of literacy on thinking. But it's not just, I mean, in what Walter Ong looked at this, Eric Havelock, a lot of academics looked at this, but I'm taking it from, I, you don't have to be an academic at all to read the book. The book's got a bunch of stories in it. And there's a story of my kind of wandering into this field of 
orality and going, oh my goodness, this is really bizarre. <laughs> because I was studying philosophy. So back to my resume, um, I was a psychotherapist and then I felt I didn't really know enough about the people I was working with, human beings. So I went back to philosophy to kind of understand human beings a bit better. So I was in the, stu in the um, library studying philosophy and at the same time, I came across storytelling as a means of entertainment. And I was doing both, and then they all got kind of mashed up together. So I started studying the study of, of storytelling. And very briefly, there's a very good argument that writing changed the way we think. When you write something down, it becomes separate from the speaker and the context of speaking. It's also true of recording. So if somebody's listening to this or watching this, they're doing it at a time after we've done it. And and if you want to, you can rewind. If you want to, you can rewind. If you want to, you know, you can play that over and over again. But that's not happening for us. I say this word, it's gone. Right? It's recorded. So that's, if you like, that's secondary orality. That's a function of literacy. And you might ask yourself... What does he mean by that? Okay. Now here, if you say, what on earth do you mean, Hugh? I can explain myself or fail. <laughs> but somebody who's watching this can't interrupt and talk to me directly. They have to say, well, what did he mean by that? It's a fixed set of sounds or words now. So what is the meaning? Well, that's a silly question. We know what the meaning is. We understand it. Okay. But the meaning that's happening here, as I talk and you understand, has an evanescent quality. It's gone as the words go. But if we listen to this podcast over and over and over again, it means the same stuff. Well, where's the meaning? It's not just this event. It's not somewhere in the camera. It's not on the page. You could say it's in a virtual space. The meaning sits beyond the words. That is a sort of bastardized version of Plato's theory of forms. It's also the point that Havelock makes about the impact of literacy. Literacy makes possible abstract thinking, because in the very basis of literacy is on the abstraction of meaning. The meaning we've got going on right here is here. But once it's recorded, it's, where is it? I mean, the meaning's not in the tape. It's in this kind of abstract understanding. We understand what the words mean because we know what the definition is because we've used them before. So meaning gets abstracted and that gives rise to abstractions like equity or equality. Yeah, You can't get a barrel full of equity or a wheelbarrow of it. It's an idea and it's the sort of idea that pre-literate people did not have. They thought it was nonsense. And there's a little bit of uh, research that I mentioned in the book, points out they just didn't think like that. So it's fascinating because it's so normal, it's kind of built into our language. Because literacy has affected the words that we speak. Yeah, there was a as a um, one of the places I sort of get my knickers in a twist uh, mentally 
I'm a sort of big libertarian free market guy, no government, no state protection, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And people then say to me, well, what about if you write a brilliant book or you write a brilliant play? How do you protect the copyright? Mm-hmm. And without, you know, IP law or whatever it is. Yeah. And I was always encouraged by the fact that in medieval times and probably before ideas were not patented they were considered part of the greater greater collective the consequence of the great so if i composed a song and everyone sang the song i might have composed the song but the song came out of the ideas that were around at the time and therefore it's part of the greater collective Mm -hmm. so i'm guessing one of your and then really only copywriting and ip and all that came along with the printing press and so th- that would be another one of your abstract ideas that didn't exist prior to writing, in a way, would it? Yeah, I mean, there weren't there weren't even authors. So the the so um, very famously, Milman Parry, um, an American academic, demonstrated that Homer, the world famous author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, was not the world famous author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Odyssey. In fact, the what we have are the transcriptions of verbal extemporizations. We've gone sort of way, way off topic, but this is something that... So my father died um, three years ago, 2020. And when, you know, somebody close to you dies, you sort of reflect a lot and think a lot. Yeah. And one of the things that I remember saying this to my daughter, if you think of all the thoughts you've ever had, Mm. all the thoughts you have when you're dreaming, all the thoughts you have through the day, how many of those thoughts do you actually put words to? How many do you actually articulate? I I don't know what the percentage is, but I imagine it's a tiny percentage. And then of those thoughts that you actually utter, how many do you actually record? I write them down or or even record them or Mm. an even tinier percentage. So... My thing that troubled me around my father's death was, you know, I I love my dad. I think he was a brilliant man. But where do thoughts go? What happens to them after you've thought them? Like all the thoughts he must have thought, and he was a writer, of all the thoughts he must have thought in his lifetime, only a tiny percentage are recorded. And similarly, you could say about the same about every human being that ever lived. Mm-hmm. Where have all those thoughts gone? What's happened to them all? They've gone, man. <laughs> They've evaporated. I mean, so my pr- process of writing is I write a great deal, and nearly all of it is at best second rate. It's, it's rubbish, you know, and I have to throw most of it away. So this this is a very short book, mm. but I must have got over a million words of notes that just aren't good enough, or they're mm. repetitive, or it's not well said, or whatever. So there's that element that much of what I think is is repetitive Planet. and a bit banal and junk. Right? So that's that lot. But those thoughts which kind of have juice, you know, that really kind of connect. Firstly, those are the ones we remember. When somebody says something that kind of hits the mark, you oh, and you might repeat that phrase mm-hmm. to people way down. But they have to have uttered it. They might have thought it and not uttered it. True. True. Or they might have uttered it to somebody who was who the thought was lost on. That's also true. But okay, so 
let me let me introduce a thought I have, which I've had often enough to be able to recall quite easily. Okay. So nowadays we have an outrageous amount of um, recorded thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everyone and their dog can do a podcast or a blog. We've got all these books. We've got libraries full of stuff. Every day, God knows how much, too much. posted on the There's too much exactly. thought to actually consume. There's way too much information. And of that, a lot of it's um, just fluff. No? But let's say a lot of it is also knowledge. It's real knowledge. We've got a huge amount, a totally overwhelming amount of knowledge. But none of it is really much use without understanding. And understanding is an activity. It's something you can do and I can do. And when we do it, we understand something. And then, you know, you you get a little bit tired or you have a beer and you don't actually understand it quite as well as you did before. Your understanding waxes and wanes. And once you, let's say you try, I notice you've taught yourself or become interested in the whole financial market stuff so you've you've created an understanding little by little you 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 have bits of information put them together and little by little you you i mean i know nothing right but i can just watch i go my goodness i don't understand that mm-hmm. but you you do have a view and you have more views and gradually some of them coalesce and then you'll throw away the ones that didn't work and but you have it's almost as though i'm looking at the financial market like this i can see like one centimeter in front of my eyes and you can see a bit further here. You can see a bit further into the past. You can see a bit deeper. You can see into the causality and the probability and all those sorts of things. So that's understanding. And I'm sure you would agree that, you know, when you're a bit tired or you know stressed, it doesn't kind of fit so well. You don't see so clearly. But when you're kind of in the zone, it's it's kind of all makes better sense and it keeps going. So that's the distinction I make between someone who's understanding something and something that a lot of us do, which is we just know a load of facts, but with minimal understanding. And a lot of our problems arise because we mistake knowing things, and particularly knowing about theories and policies. We mistake that for understanding. Mm. Uh, That which brings us to the expert. (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's come back to your biography and we got as far as the storytelling mm-hmm. and then just summarise the rest of it very quickly, if you can, and then we'll go into what the bug in our thinking is and how do we fix it. Uh, I can't summarise my... I did too many things, but storytelling, psychotherapy. Um, I then went that So I went back to do my PhD, started working with Paul McKenna, helping him out with some videos and DVDs and goodness knows what. I came out of the library and Paul's a millionaire and I'm a pauper and I'm going, whoa, that went, that's no option. <laughs> um, Metamate did, we set up a qualitative market research business, which was, uh, did a lot of very interesting work for the government. So I kind of met government quite close up. We were mm. doing contracts for them. And I have to say, they're not that impressive, really. Um, it's enough to make you a libertarian. <laughs> um, what happened after that? Uh, ah, loads of other things. But uh, basically, the, this book, which is totally accessible, please buy it, by the way. End up in Vietnam. We'll, we'll plug your book. Don't, okay. don't worry. How did you plug, plug, end plug. up in Vietnam? 
I went on holiday. Um, I'd been, um, I'd finished a book. I went on holiday. Uh, I like dancing. I like Lindy Hop. And I, they had a Lindy Hop exchange. You know, visitors come, they all dance together mm. and they go home. Uh, I met a girl and uh, thereby hangs tight. So now I have a wife and two kids and I live in Vietnam. Whereabouts? In Saigon, which is Ho Chi Minh City in the south. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. What is the bug in our thinking and what is the way to fix it? Well, we've already touched on it. Mm-hmm. The bug in our thinking is defaulting to abstraction, believing that an abstraction is more accurate and more important than contextually grounded understanding. So over and over again, we think we understand stuff because we can express our understanding in terms of abstraction. And we do indeed understand it, but in a very thin, narrow, limited way. So you might have uh, basically any policy is an abstraction. It's saying, let's do this in the face of X. But there is never only X. There's always X and a context and different consequences and everything else has changed. The world has moved on. People are behaving. People start gaming the policy. And so little by little, the policy goes wrong. But over and over and over again, governments say we should have a policy. People strive to say, you know, well, I want to know what the right thing is so that I can just do it and put my feet up. But life isn't like that. We live inextricably in unique contexts. So we have to find a way to live that meets the requirements of this moment right here. Do this moment well. And whatever happens next, I'll have to try and meet that well. But I can't have a policy. It's like if I had sat down and said, oh, Dominic's going to interview me. I must say these five points. It would sound like a typical interview. It wouldn't go off the way we've gone off. Mm. But it would have that sense of he's just doing his spiel, isn't he? You might be doing it terribly enthusiastically, Dominic. Oh, I must tell you, but it's still a spiel. You know, it's not, it's not, it lacks authenticity. And so the real challenge is being here now. And I'm not the first person to say that. No. <laughs> and so how, how do we do that? Okay, let me backtrack a little bit. Mm-hmm. One of the consequences of literacy, because as you earlier said, we can record information and transmit it, and also with recordings, obviously, is that we gained quickly the delusion that we could take anything, write down the essence of it, and teach it. And so any number of activities which used to be taught in different ways get taught through the filter of literacy. You can do a degree in anything. So a university degree is effectively literacy-based education. And it's not bad, but it's actually only one quarter of a whole education. So, uh, so how did I get there? I thought to, I, I, I was kind of worrying my head about literacy, and I and um, maybe even maybe even I can find you the the quotation. I used. Yes. This is from Plato. He says, When Thoth invented writing, he took it to Thamus, king of Egypt, to distribute to his subjects. Thamus said to Thoth, Those who acquire writing skills will cease to exercise their memory and become forgetful. 
They will rely on writing to bring things to their remembrance by external signs instead of on their own internal resources. What you've discovered is a receipt for recollection, not for memory. And as for wisdom, your pupils will have the reputation for it without the reality. They will get a quantity of information without proper instruction, and in consequence be thought very knowledgeable when they are, for the most part, quite ignorant. And because they are filled with the conceit of wisdom, instead of real wisdom, they will be a burden to society. I just love that. And look around you now. How many burdens to society can you see? Well, lots. Absolutely. And I'm going to burden creators as well. Absolutely. And I'm going to finish back to the education bit. I read that and I was, I thought that was great. And I was banging on Twitter about it. And years later, I suddenly thought to myself, hang on, hang on. He, he says they will receive a quantity of information without proper instruction. And I thought, hang on, what is proper instruction? Because remember, this is from the moment where somebody invents writing. So if you don't have writing, how do you instruct people? How do you learn stuff? And you think about it, you go, well, you've got experience, you've got storytelling, and you've got apprenticeship. And that, I would argue, is the key to understanding a proper education. It's got four pillars, literacy, apprenticeship, experience, and storytelling. And pretty much everyone I meet, I'll, I'll assert that, I'll say, that's what I think. And I'll say, but think of your own experience. Like, is that true for you? The things that you know and the things that you can do well, it's probably true there are people you met from whom you learned a great deal in a personal relationship, apprenticeship. It's almost certainly true you've learned from your experience. You've probably learned from stories rather more than you notice. And I'm sure you learned from school or college or wherever you went. Yeah? 100%. Yeah. And so, again, an example of a fallacious policy is this notion you can abstract thinking, uh, turn it into teaching, write it down, chuck it back out at people and that'll work. So that's abstraction on abstraction on abstraction. And guess what? It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see it when some government official somewhere or some official, you know, wants somebody to do something, they put up a sign mm -hmm. telling you <laughs> that that'll do it. Put up a sign. It just won't. Um, I, I was interested in a lot, a lot of the things that you were saying there and... My understanding is the very first forms of handwriting were um, recorded debts. <laughs> Probably, yeah. And so you would have a clay ball. Mm -hmm. You would bake. So we're in ancient Mesopotamia here, yeah. early use of clay. Yeah. And you would have, I can't remember what, but it, like a cone would represent a bit of barley and a, a, a disc would represent a sheep. Yeah. And uh, whatever shape would represent something else. And then you would bake those <laughs> tokens inside a clay ball. And when the debt was settled, you smash open the clay ball. And then they discovered that actually inscribing the clay with pictures of the items instead was more efficient. And so did we have the first hieroglyphs. And so did handwriting involved. So, but, so, but the debt and the primary debt that was owed was, of course, tax. Mm hmm. And so the very first forms of handwriting were actually bits of accountancy and tax documents, um, which would sort of doesn't detract from what Plato said there. Absolutely not. No, no. I mean, writing was a really geeky, weird thing. It was like... And the scribes were the tax collectors. The scribes were tax... But they were also like... I mean, everyone's doing it now, but 
you know, let's say 25 years ago, if you were writing code, that made you a, a complete nerd, you know, mm-hmm. like some weirdo. And that's where writing was for, for millennia. Mm-hmm. Well, not for millennia, but for centuries. Because code is like do- Latin in 1300 or something. Exactly. You, you, you had your monks and your accountants and the super rich and 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 the the really geeky weirdos of like there were half a dozen universities with a few hundred people and a lot of them were also monks anyway so it was this small small slice of society until the printing press and then it went boom and you had a couple of centuries of conflict because all these ideas got spread and right now we've got the same thing happening with the internet um ridiculous proliferation of ideas and also i mean if we can go off on one for a moment, I mean, the problem with the net at the moment is that it's it's massive, it's just huge, and there's so much stuff on it, but it's really unrepresentative of the public at large. The, the, the people on the internet who make the most noise are, I, mean, I don't know if you remember being at a primary school, everyone's playing, there's a few kids in the corner who are screaming and shouting and hitting each other. They're the ones screaming and shouting on the internet. The rest of us just trying to play normally, you know, just have a bit of fun, be nice to each other. But the noise on the internet comes from the crazies. Um, so it's really distorting public discourse. It's a very weird time. Mm. One thing that, another thing I thought of when I was listening to you talk about um, that Plato quote, and it is kind of relevant to everything we've been talking about, is how I keep reading we only use five or ten percent of the capacity of our minds, and if that discussion is correct, it would suggest that previous um, human beings from thousands of years ago will have used much more of their mind power than we do today. In the same way, like fizzing, like hmm. most of us would not. Our Stone Age self is oh. probably a better human physical specimen than us today because if we needed glasses or a pump for our asthma or whatever, we wouldn't have had those things and we would have most likely perished. Yeah. So human beings were probably you know, stronger, fitter, faster. Their recall was better. Their memories were better. They needed to memorize routes and they didn't have Google Maps. You know, mm. So they were probably greater physical and mental specimens. What they didn't have was the accumulated knowledge that we have. Oh. Um, so is that something you talk about in our book is how to increase the amount of mental capacity that we use um, indirectly um, I'm interested in uh, seeing more clearly understanding better and that's an action that's a thing we do from time to time you can't do it all the time it's exhausting And sometimes it helps to talk to somebody and they spark an idea and you go, oh, and we share something for a moment and we understand that. But I I certainly don't think that is equivalent to accumulating knowledge. I think they're at right angles to each other. You can accumulate knowledge and understand nothing. And you can understand a little bit and not know a lot of knowledge. And perhaps you can do a bit of both. Um, But they're certainly not the same thing. And the way somebody said to me, why didn't it, why isn't it a how-to book? You know, how to fix it. And the answer is because it's a way. It's a way you have to part, walk along that way. It's a, it's a an invitation to walk through a set of 
ideas and thoughts. And I use a lot of my own stories because I am my raw material, but there's a lot of other stuff knocking around out there and the philosophers and hypnotists and, and therapists that I quote. Um, and it's, if you like, it's a, a little bit of an adventure. You walk along and you see this and you go along and you see that. And for me, it's been fascinating getting feedback uh, from early readers and reviews and so on. And the review tells us something about the book. And every time, of course, something about the, re the reviewer. And people read it and see and understand different things. So the key is there's lots of stories in here. And I have two rules about stories, no titles and no morals. And if you don't do that, if you refrain from giving it a title and telling us what the moral is, then the story will show you something depending on how you read it and what where you're coming from. And I'm not in charge of the meaning of a story. And particularly if you think about traditional stories, like how did they happen, right? Somebody tells a story. I tell you a story. Well, why would you tell it to anybody else? Well, you will if you think, oh, that's funny, or there's something about it that makes me want to tell it again. So you tell, I don't know, your daughter. And she goes off to school or wherever, uni, and, and she says, oh, I've got to tell you this story. And she tells it to somebody else. And it, but the only reason it would be repeated if, is each person feels it's worth repeating. Now, we don't know why that is. And it might be the same reason or it might be different. But it, there's something, if you like, that appeals to humans, all sorts of humans, in traditional stories. And it can't be reduced to a single one-liner. Like those, like, who was it who had morals at the bottom? Anyway, you can't do it. If you can do that, you don't need the story. But the story's like a little hologram or something. And the ones that get passed on and on and on have something deeply human in them. And they connect us in ways that we can't really analyze and reduce to bullet points and explanations. They're very, very powerful. What is the greatest story ever told? Um, that's what a naughty question. But I'll tell you the answer. It's the Mahabharata, which is the Indian epic. It's, it's huge. It's 15 times longer than the Bible. And within it uh, are, is the Ramayana, which is another huge Indian epic. And it said it's the story. It's the story of a, a of two uh, of two sets of cousins who who fight and fall out, and eventually they there's a great big battle. And it's said that it's really the story. It's it, Mahabharata means the great. I think it's the great family. And it's really about. You could argue how to become master or mistress of yourself. And it's said that anyone who knows the whole of the Mahabharata and can recite it becomes enlightened. I, you, I'm guessing you can't, could you, at one point? No, it's far too long. I went to see the most wonderful theatrical production by Peter Brook back in the 1980s uh, of the whole thing, which was staggeringly beautiful. Um, and they reduced this enormous thing to a nine-hour play, a mere nine hours, gone like that. <laughs> Would you watch that over three days? Or We did watch it over three days, also a whole night long. Oh, wow. Which was astonishing, really astonishing. I, I say a little bit about it in the book. Mm -hmm. um, he was one of my great heroes. He died very recently, Peter Brook, just 
I think last year. Yeah, one of the great one of the great directors. The Bug in Our Thinking and the Way to Fix It by Hugh Wilburn. And who is your publisher? Do we are you It's me. Um so it's well in press, but actually that's me. So if you want to get it, you go to hughwilborn.com. That's H-U-G-H-W-I-L-L-B-O-U-R-N.com. Um, so that's how you get hold of the paperback. If you want an ebook, it's on Amazon. And do you have like audio books and things like that? The audio, as soon as I can record it, there will be an audio book. But okay. I, that'll be in the next mm, two or three weeks. Oh, okay. And that will get out through Audible, which is, I think, Amazon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, you've got a good voice, so you should read it. Thank you, Dominic. My, very much. My pleasure. Now, so let's talk a bit about your work as a, in hypnosis and therapy and that kind of thing. Is this thing of not using our full mental capacity something you've explored before? Uh, I've come across the notion a lot. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not convinced by the theory. Um, however, it's very clear that the conscious mind is a small section of all of our mind. So we understand things and we do things without really understanding how we do them. When I'm talking to you, I am not consciously thinking what's the next word I need to use and sort of stitching them all together. I think, and the words flow and express something, and then I think, oh, that's not quite right, so I have to adjust myself. But there's a sort of feedback going on. I, I see what I say, or I hear what I say, and I think, ooh, like, no, not quite right, I'm going to do that. So it's quite clear that consciousness is a little bit more peculiar than we imagine it. And what you really understand when you study hypnosis is not that it's definitely not a discrete state, like everyday life hypnosis. No, it turns out that everyday life is remarkably riddled with hypnotic phenomena. A lot of the time, we are in different versions of a trance. So if you, uh, when I started doing therapy, I was a hypnotherapist. Um, and what, pe what used to happen in those days, maybe still does, people would come along and say, look, here's my life. You're a hypnotist. Can you hypnotize me, fix it, and give it back to me? And, yeah. And that's kind of weird because even if you do do that, it, it, I kind of thought, well, that's not really what I want to do because I think psychotherapy should be about people feeling more in charge of their life not giving it to me to fix and taking mm. it back again. So I kind of wanted them to be, if you like, more competent and capable, not be their kind of butler. <laughs> is that possible to do with I mean, that? The ridiculous thing that people were asking of you, is that actually possible to do with hypnosis? Can you hypnotize me to be a better version of myself? No, because um, a better version of yourself is almost certainly more conscious rather than directed by me. <laughs> mm. But that, but could you, okay, but also, could you like, hypnotize me and manipulate me to do things that maybe I don't want to do? But, Dominic, you chose to do this podcast. But you can... You, uh, people do it all the time, Dominic. People do it all the time. It's always happening. When you go to go NLP, is that a form of hypnosis? It derives from hypnosis. You yeah. go to a coffee shop and they'll say... Um, you, you go and say, I'd like a coffee. And they say, do you want a sandwich? Uh, what do you want? Do you want a pastry with that? 
and you normally say no unless you're half asleep and then you go, oh, or I have one of those, right? They're manipulating you. Mm -hmm. It's very, very simple. They just say, and would you like X? And most of the time it doesn't work, but every now and then it does and they upsell you and they get more money. They just manipulated you. It's, it's common as crabgrass. And if you want to do the opposite, um, whenever you go and buy something, you say, can you give me a discount? It's just like saying, do you want a pastry with that? So I read a book on negotiation a while back, and I just I got totally into it. I was getting discounts all over the place. I mean, mostly I'm too lazy. I just, okay, I'll pay. Yeah. But I was like, will you give me a discount? So uh, I was buying some jeans. And I said, oh, okay, you can have it for whatever, 85 quid. So I could give him another tenner off. He said, oh, all right. I said, okay, and another? He said, no. <laughs> but I just got 20 quid off for, for three sentences. Mm -hmm. So man, uh, Jay Haley, a wonderful man, uh, a therapist, amongst other things, he said, we cannot not influence each other. So the delusion is that A, we're fully conscious and B, we're autonomous and we're not being influenced. The reality is we're mostly in trance, we're deeply suggestible and all that's happening all the time and we have the delusion that we're in charge, but we're manifestly not. How much are we being manipulated by the powers that be? How much of the information, you know, psyops and all that stuff that you read about? I, well, I th again, I think that's, yeah, that's normal, if you like. What's, what's abnormal is the technology and the, the degree of uniformity, which effectively is a function of the internet and of, of all this stuff. Um, so I, I, I read a bit about it uh, on my blog, uh, cock up conspiracy or murmuration mm -hmm. so the cock up thing is it's all a big mistake conspiracy the baddies are running it right but my theory is you actually only need half a dozen um tendencies to create exactly what happened over the last two or three years so you have you need fear and greed cognitive inertia um group think uh and um, overvaluation of abstraction and all of those I mean again you have to look at the blog because mm -hmm. you can't condense it but um, all of the stuff that you, you can you can imagine behind it is some evil dude in a big armchair with a cat going I'm going to control the world but that's a fiction I mean maybe he exists but we're already doing all his work for him so you know, you don't need conspiracy theories to think, to see how it all could be hanging together. And in fact, it's just driven by fear and greed, primarily. Group thing, cognitive inertia, and a couple of others I've forgotten right now. What about hallucinogens? Is these, is these something you've ever dabbled with? Do you encourage them? Do you discourage them? Do they do more good than they do harm? Do they do more harm than they do good? Wow. Um... I'm not sure I'm qualified to give an opinion. I mean, I think people... Um, what can I say about that? I haven't ever... I mean, some therapists recently are using things like ayahuasca and whatever. I just don't know. I just don't know the answer to that. So. Okay, it's not something you've dealt in. No. Okay. Um, coming back to this hypnosis thing... What then can be a? Do you still practice it? What what can be achieved by it? Um, I do it when necessary, which turns out to be not very often. Mm -hmm. um, funnily, you enough, still have patients that you treat. I 
occasionally people hunt me down who I used to, I got this referral from somebody I'd seen at least 20 years earlier. And I thought, well, if you found me, the least I can do is, is do some work. And, um, and in fact, it was in the lockdown stuff, so I had to do it over Zoom. Mm -hmm. So we did it over Zoom and uh, the, 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 the client was very, very happy. And then things sort of eased up and I was able to travel and the client said, I'd really like to meet you face to face because we've only ever done Zoom and kind of everything was sorted, but the client wanted to meet me again. So I said, yes, yeah. so I was in London. I, I, I kind of borrowed somebody's office. We met. And I think they were very disappointed, actually. I don't think I was as cool in reality as I had been on Zoom. <laughs> but um, I've gone off on one there. You asked me something about... What could be achieved by hypnosis? Yeah. Um, well, look around you. A great deal can be achieved with hypnosis. It might not be what you want to achieve, don't, don't me. But um, so... Uh, okay, there are two... Let's divide it up. There's suggestibility... And then there's trance. So trance is literally the experience of uh, going into a state of kind of, well, again, there are variations on it, but disconnect from ordinary reality. And then there are a bunch of hypnotic phenomena like anesthesia, analgesia, pseudo-orientation in time, um, hallucination, yeah? And then uh, and it sort of comes around the circle and then there's suggestibility. So you can, people can be very suggestible, although they're not aware that they're in trance. They don't think, I don't think I'm in trance. I'm just going to, that seems like a very good idea. I shall do that. Yeah. And then you can induce uh, what we call hypnotic phenomena without formally inducing trance. And in fact, hypnotic phenomena occurred spontaneously. So Mesmer, famously the guy in, in 18th century France, with his baquet was magnetizing people and they were throwing shapes and going and babbling and doing all sorts of strange stuff spontaneously. So then Charcot and the people following said, do that, um, do that arm levitation thing, do that analgesia thing. So they were asking for the spontaneous stuff to recur. And that's the genesis of modern hypnotic phenomena. You leave here and you think, oh my God, my God, there's my bus. And you run, you run, you run. You stub your toe, but you want to get on the bus. So you run and you jump on the bus and you sit down and you go, ow, bloody hell. Okay? You gave yourself a spontaneous analgesia because you really wanted to get on the bus. When you made it and you relax, you suddenly realize, God, that really hurt. But it didn't until you got on the bus. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a natural part of hypnosis. You can see it in supermarkets. You know, there's a guy standing there like this and he's thinking, hmm, cornflakes, Wheatlicks, cornflakes, wheatlicks, wheatlicks, cornflakes, right? This arm, cataleptic. It's, it's floating there. He can't feel the weight. He's just going, cornflakes, wheatlicks, cornflakes, right? It's a natural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But if I induce that in a, a session, people go, whoa, that's weird. Why is my arm floating like that? <laughs> I see. Yeah. So it's, it, what I'm trying to say is it's a continuum. And a lot of the time, we're in different types of trances. Mm -hmm. And there's more about it in here. Which I, I mean, if I could explain everything in one podcast, I wouldn't have had to write the blinking book. So um, you do have to read the book for the chapter and verse. Um, I remember my friend told me this story about he, he was um, doing something he shouldn't have been doing when he was a teenager. And he nearly got caught by the police. Mm -hmm. And to get away from the police, he had to jump a wall. He had to scale a wall and get over the wall, which he did. 
And he was obviously, he was 17, I think he was terrified. He was, for what it's worth, he was graffitiing all around our school and then the, somebody called the police on him and he had to like rug it. Yeah. And uh, he said he went back and looked at the wall a week later. Yeah. And he still can't understand how he managed to scale that wall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is that something you've encountered before where people in, in extremists can do things that they wouldn't normally be able to do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not sure that's to do with hypnosis, but I think essentially we're, we're over-engineered for what we normally ask of ourselves. And we very rarely, rarely exert 100% of our anything, our attention, our physical power, anything. Very, very rare do we really push it. And it's quite spectacular when we do. We do things like that. You know, there are many stories and, you know, verified stories of, you know, women lifting cars off babies and stuff like that and, and guys jumping walls that they couldn't possibly climb in ordinary mm -hmm. life. Um, yeah, we do. We have an enormous capacity. Um, I mean, again, it's another huge area. Okay. Uh, sure thing. Who's the greatest therapist that ever lived? guy called Milton Erickson. Milton H. Erickson uh, was the greatest hypnotist in the 20th century. I mentioned him in here. There's a thing called the Milton H. Erickson Foundation, essentially trying to um, build on his work. He was a farmer's son who got polio. Mm -hmm. He remobilized himself using tiny little movements and auto-suggestion. And then he wanted to be a farmer, but he, he, although he recovered, he wasn't strong enough to be a farmer. So he became a doctor, uh, a psychiatrist, and all the time he was working with hypnosis. Um, he did an awful lot of experiments and he had an extraordinary practice and he changed an awful lot of people's lives. He was um, charismatic. He was also very unorthodox. There's lots and lots of stories of his work. The best introduction is a book called Uncommon Therapy by J. Haley, J-A-Y-H-A-L-E-Y. Um, uh, so I say it in here. Erickson, he wrote, uh, well, he didn't write, but Ernest Rossi collected his papers. So four volumes, it's about this big, two volumes of clinical uh, research, two volumes of, of case histories. In all of those four volumes, there is not a single time when he gives you a theory of hypnosis. He tells you what happened, and when he was teaching, people say, oh, so how does this hypnosis work? And he would say, I had a client come to see me. He'd tell another story. He just told stories. He told stories. And he changed people's lives. Well, you heard it here first. Um, Hugh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much to you, dear listener, dear viewer, for watching the show. The book is called uh, The Bug in Our Thinking and the Way to Fix It. The author is Hugh Wilburn, and you can get it via hughwilburn.com. Yep. And thank you very much for listening. If you like the show, please uh, give us a nice rating on iTunes or give us a thumbs up on YouTube. I don't know if it helps, but I'm told that it does. And... Um, I need to get more people reviewing the show on on uh, on whatever your podcast app is. So, yeah, give us the thumbs up. Give us the nice rating if you liked it. And I'll be back with another podcast very soon. Until then, thank you very much for listening and for watching. Goodbye.